1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to probably get about halfway. I'm shooting to get halfway through chapter 12 tonight. But we come to the end of Solomon's life. We say goodbye to Solomon and to the United Kingdom. Not of Britain. But the unified kingdom of all 12 tribes of Israel. By the time we're done tonight, that will be a thing of the past. Tragically speaking. But you know, before I go any further, let's, let's pray one more time together. Lord Jesus, we ask by your Spirit's power that you will translate and communicate to us tonight. I was thinking yet again today, Father, how absolutely amazing it is that we can communicate with each other at all. When we mix in all of our perceptions and our, our baggage and our understanding of life from the place that we've all come from, the fact that we can talk and get ideas and concepts and thoughts across to each other, it's, it's really a miracle. <laughs> and we don't want to miss a word tonight that you have to speak for us or to us. And so, Holy Spirit, communicate your truths. Lord, we pray that you won't sugarcoat anything. That you will bring everything you want to say, the truth in love, Father. As you do by nature. Give us ears to hear, unclogged and open. And regardless of where we've come from today, this past week, this past year, or in our lives, I pray that there be nothing to keep us from hearing what you want to say to us tonight. Teach us your word, Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. I, I like the King James translation of that actually better. If you have a King James Bible, you know it says, King Solomon loved many strange women. <laughs> I just like the way that's worded. But he loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Zidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them. Literally, you shall not go among them. Nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Well, Solomon held fast to these in lust. Love, sorry, love. (laughs) Verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, which I think indicates maybe the princesses were so many they didn't even get a number. I don't know. 700 wives, yeah, princesses in addition to the wives and 300 concubines. Lots of women around him. And his wives turned his heart away. Listen to this. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Now, out of, for sensitivity's sake, I think I mentioned that a few weeks ago I said something about the age of 70 and compared that to being old. And so if you heard me say that, I don't think 70 is old. But I want you to hear what the standard is here. I think this is interesting. It says when Solomon was old, at this time he's 55. So anyone over 55 year old, according to scripture, according to what it says, no, he was 55 years old. Here's the indication, gang. He was a mature adult man. He had lived a long time in his life. And to my way of thinking, when a man reaches the age of 55, by then you would think he would begin to settle in. You'd think at that point, especially a follower of the Lord, would by 55 
be pretty dialed into his faith. I mean, Galen, wouldn't you think that? Right on. (laughs) And this is the time when we discover his wives turned his heart. It wasn't when he was in his 20s. No, you can look back when he prayed that wonderful prayer at the dedication of the temple. This was a guy who loved the Lord. Or it seemed that way on the surface. He really wanted to follow the Lord in his 20s. But in his 50s, his heart gets turned away. I point that out simply to say that this did not happen in his youth. His divided heart happened in the days when you would think all of his life and his wisdom and his experience would yield greater maturity. And that's the problem right there. We think that maturity comes by experiencing life. We think that by testing out things and trying things that ultimately will come around for the right decision. had a conversation just today about someone who is a young person who is at this point in life heading in a different direction than the Lord. Heading out into sexual things, away from the Lord, and, and, and thinking, well, but this is now, maybe when I'm 23, 24, 25, I'll, I'll come back to it. But I just, I want to, I enjoy this, I want to try this, I want to experience it now. Experimentation never grows maturity. That's not what does it. How do you know this, Rick? Well, I look at Solomon's life. He says in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Solomon did remember his Creator, at least somewhat in the days of his youth, but he forgot his Creator as he matured into adulthood. What's the problem? Solomon had a half-hearted faith. You go to the first three kings of Israel, and it's an interesting study just to compare Saul, David, and Solomon. Saul had no heart for the Lord. David had a whole heart for the Lord, and Solomon had half a heart. He was a half-hearted follower. The key verse of Solomon's entire life is verse 4, the last half of the verse that says, His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He loved God. But he loved his women. He loved the Lord. He worshipped the Lord. But he followed the direction that his wives and princesses and concubines led him. Half of his heart was to the Lord. Half of his heart was to the many wives. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us he took on many wives. And if you read the Song of Songs, he writes women well. He really does. Women who read the Song of Songs can relate to the emotions of the woman in the poem. How could a man possibly understand a woman like he does when he writes Song of Songs? I couldn't do it. But he understood women. He should. He had many of them around him all the time. Why did he do it? Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 1. He says, I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure. I'm going to try it on. See how it fits. See what it's like. He says, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it was futility. He tried it out for a season. Verse 8 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He says, also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men. What are the pleasures of men, Solomon? He says, many concubines. 
Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. That's a key phrase. My wisdom stood by me, he says. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Which means if Solomon was walking down the street and a hottie was walking down the other side of the street, Solomon said, I'm going to try her out. Which is how he ended up with a thousand wives and concubines and princesses. I'll try her out. I'll give her a shot. We'll see how she fits. We'll test this thing out. It is the biggest lie, by the way, of those who live together before marriage. We've got to see if we're compatible. We'll learn from Solomon. There's no such thing as seeing if you're compatible. I believe I've shared before, trust me, it's going to work. It's going to work. Compatibility. Verse 10 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Solomon says, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse him. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity. What was Solomon doing? Experimentation. Now it's interesting to me, because in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, there are two things that jump out at me. He says, I will test pleasure and he says my wisdom stood by me so here's the deal he was given great wisdom from God how did he use it to pour over the scriptures to write and study Torah which the kings were supposed to do or to test pleasure that's what he did I have wisdom so I'm going to detach myself I'm going to experience all these things in the flesh and in the body and I'm going to use my wisdom to see how that works and to see what it's like and to see where I end up with all this. And do you know what his wisdom told him when he was done with all of this testing of pleasure and experimentation? Futility. Solomon says at the end of his life it was a big, fat waste of time. That's what his wisdom told him. I read that and I think, what a waste of wisdom. To spend it on the flesh when he could have spent it on the spirit. How much could we have gained as children of God reading books Solomon had written if he had spent all that wisdom that God had given him in the scriptures? He could have written a phenomenal commentary. The book of Ecclesiastes, though a very important book for us in the Bible, is a commentary on the futility of life. And yet he could have written one on the wonders in Genesis. The amazing moments of exodus. But he chose to use his wisdom for experimentation. Solomon is the great test case for humanity's experimentation. He tried it all, including wife after wife after wife. And we do that today. We say, well, this person doesn't really meet my needs. Maybe this person will. That didn't work out so well, so I'm going to try this relationship because maybe this one will be better. And again, that's part of the reason Solomon ended up Solomon ended up with so many wives. Solomon didn't have to experiment at all, by the way. More than 400 years prior, the Lord spoke clearly through Moses in Deuteronomy 17, 17, which we've used a lot. It's the comparative verse to Solomon's life, Deuteronomy 17. God said, He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Did God call it or what? I mean, he nailed it. 400 years before he said anyone who amasses many many wives your heart's going to turn away and that's exactly what the scriptures say happened his wives turned his heart away his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord 
Psalm 19 verse 8 tells us the commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes now here's something for us rather than experimenting with things in the flesh we can take the commandments of the Lord at face value and our eyes will be enlightened I don't have to see it or hear it or do it to understand it I can just go to the word I can just go to the commandments of the Lord for enlightenment and we would avoid a lot of pain if we understood this God doesn't hand out commandments for the sake of handing out commandments God doesn't lay out lists of rules and regulations just because he is haphazardly up in heaven thinking I'm going to try this one out or let's put this one on their shoulders or let's strap them down with this difficult rule the truth is God knows our hearts and being the loving, good, and gracious Father that He is, He looks down the pike and warns us of everything that could possibly turn our heart away from Him. We call it Torah. We call it commandments. He calls it love. I'm going to give you fair warning ahead of time. If you do this, this will be the consequence. So don't do that. Just trust me. Solomon said, That's nice, Lord. But I gotta test it. I gotta see if you're right. I gotta see if by the end of my life I have a big gaping open hole in my heart. And that's exactly what happens to him. We don't have to experiment, gang, to know the truth. Hebrews 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. One of the greatest lies of the enemy is the lie of experimentation. Try it out to see if it works. And that's what Solomon thought. I'll test these things. I'm going to experiment a bit. And I'm going to see for myself, using my wisdom, if God was right in the first place. Guess what? Solomon finds out the Lord was right. Now, we're further down the pike. We can look back further and not only look at the law that the Lord laid out, but we can look in the lives of men like Solomon and see them trying everything on And with wisdom, we can say, wow, that didn't work out for Solomon. You know what's incredibly stupid? To say, but it might work out for me. And yet that's our struggle. I think maybe I can make it work. Solomon used his wisdom. He used his wealth. All these God-given gifts to try out and try on the pleasures of life. I love what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted us, listen to this, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything is a word that doesn't leave out anything. Peter writes, We have what we need to follow after Jesus. We've got it all. Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence, by these He's granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And that's the deal. Human experimentation leads to human corruption. But human faithfulness to God the Father that leads to a life of righteousness and enlightenment and truth and eventually a home with Jesus in heaven. Well, the final straw in Solomon's life, the one thing Scripture plainly tells us divided his heart 
was his love of many women. Verse 5 now goes on to give the specific direction to which Solomon's heart turned because of his many women. Verse 5. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Hamash, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem. That would probably be the Mount of Olives. And for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. I want you to see something here. The word specifically lists three idols or three gods that Solomon pursued because of his wives. Now you might have counted four if you count Ashtoreth, Milcom, Chemosh, or Chemosh, and Molech. Well, Milcom and Molech are the same god. You'll notice they're both the god of the Amorite, or Ammonites. Okay? Milcom and Molech, same god. So there are three that we're dealing with here that were the big three for Solomon. Ashtoreth, Molech, and Chemosh. Number one, Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth was the goddess of sex and fertility, the many-breasted goddess of sex and fertility. And the worship of Ashtoreth is still observed in America today. All the time. In our fascination and preoccupation with sexual things. The worship of Ashtoreth is alive and well. By the way, a little side note on Ashtoreth. It was believed that Ashtoreth came from heaven. By the way, she has some other names. Astarte, Aphrodite, Juno, maybe you've heard these other names in other uh, cultures mythology. Same goddess came down from heaven dropping down in a huge egg. And that's one of the reasons why every spring the pagan celebration involved the coloring and collecting of little eggs. Ashtoreth had another name. Her name was Ishtar where we get the name Easter. Now the practice of celebrating this life of Ishtar it actually began far earlier in the place called Babel built by a guy named Nimrod whose wife was a woman named Semiramis who was the first high priestess of paganism. Nimrod was the first in history to introduce heathen and pagan worship. So this is an old, old pagan religion. Ashtoreth or Astarte was also called, she bore the title of the Queen of Heaven. Anyone know anyone else with that title? Time Magazine reports that according to all the modern popes, Mary is by name and nature the Queen of Heaven. Mary is called the Queen of Heaven in Catholicism. I point that out to say this, the only Queen of Heaven mentioned in the Bible is Ashtoreth. She's the only one bearing that name. It's the name of a pagan idol. There is no other Queen of Heaven and Ashtoreth is simply made up. For further study on this, and I had a whole, like three or four pages of notes I was going to go into, and I just, for time's sake, we've, we've talked about this before, I highly recommend a couple of different resources for you if you want to find out more about the, the way Mary became so quickly and highly elevated in the Catholic Church and where that ties into paganism. And it happened around 325. 325 A.D. when Constantine came to power. Again, I'm not going to go all into it, but I recommend Dave Hunt's pretty courageous book, A Woman Rides the Beast. 
It's an interesting title. You might not want to be reading that sitting in Starbucks. People may look, wonder what in the world you're studying there. A Woman Rides the Beast. Or you can go to the website and you can download. There are two Revelation studies where we talk about this. The first one is Revelation 2, 18 through 29, when we look at the church of Thyatira. And the second is Revelation 17, where we talk about Mystery Babylon, this whole religion. And we go pretty in-depth into it. Those of you who studied through that, you know what I'm talking about. But let me just say this one more thing about Ashtoreth, specifically about the Queen of Heaven. What did Jesus say about Mary? What were his words on Mary? Did he elevate her as the Queen of Heaven? Did Jesus ever at any time say anything about Mary to say that she is high and exalted, that she is above others? Well, we know in one case that people said, Hey, Jesus, your mother and your your brothers are outside. And Jesus said, Who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? It's, It's these people here. Jesus also said the following in Luke 11:27 it says a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed and he said on the contrary blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it he could have right there said yeah yeah blessed virgin mary no blessed are those who read and know the word by the way, the last recorded words of Mary in Scripture are interesting. John chapter 2, verse 5. The last thing she says that we have written down is, Whatever He says to you, do it. Speaking of Jesus. So we have Ashtoreth as one of the gods that Solomon chased after. Of course, being a many-breasted god, this would appeal to Solomon with all of his wives. The second one is Molech, or Milcom, Malcolm, either one. And he's the god of success. I don't even like talking about Molech because you Bible students may recall that to ensure success in business and life, people would take clay pots. They would put infants into the clay pots live and build them into the walls of their homes or places of business. This is how they achieve success. This is what Molech required of them as a pagan god. Archaeologists have actually unearthed clay pots containing small bones. So they know that this happened. Who would do that today? Well, sorry son, I've got to put you in a jar until I achieve the success that I set out to achieve. Sorry kids, I, I don't have time for you. I have too much on my plate at work or in business. We do a similar thing. Archaeologists have also unearthed infant bones that were scorched by fire because Molech was that iron idol whose outstretched arms were heated up molten hot and infants were placed on those arms where they sizzled and burned until they fell down into his iron belly which was a furnace. And this was done in the Bible tells us, Jeremiah 7.31, in the valley of Hinnom. It says, Jeremiah 7.31, They have built the high places of Tophet, which is the valley of the son of Hinnom. By the way, Tophet means drumming, because they would drum these huge drums to drown out the sounds of the cries of the infants. These drums would pound and pound and pound while the infants were placed on this scorching hot idol. That was Molech. When people say, boy, I think it was kind of harsh of God to send the people of Israel into the land of Canaan and wipe out all those people... Trust me, he was doing them a favor. It's like shooting a dog with rabies. This is how sick and twisted the nations around Israel were, even in Solomon's day. 
They have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, says the Lord, and it did not come into my mind. And the Hinnom Valley is in Jerusalem today, the valley of Gehinnom, Gehenna. It's the word that Jesus used to describe hell. And that's where that comes from. Ashtoreth, the goddess of pleasure and sexuality. Molech, the god of success. And the third god, Hamash, which we don't know as much about. Hamash is a sun god, and there are different designations for what he represented. I saw the god of power, god of war, but most notably the god of death. Now, the reason I pause to point out these three gods, or the goddess and the two gods, is this. There's an interesting progression in these three names, in these three gods and their purposes. We begin with Ashtoreth, we move to Molech, and then to Hamash. Well, Ashtoreth being the goddess of pleasure, and Molech being the god of prosperity, and Hamash being the god of the power of death. Pleasure, prosperity, death. There's a pattern there. There seems to be a, a progression there. In fact, James 1.15 says, When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Pleasure. Power and prosperity. Death. You know, it's interesting to me, we, we had a great conversation, we had a bunch of great conversations this last week at the, at the men's retreat over the weekend. And one of them was about the fact that sin sticks. Sin clumps together. This is kind of a, I guess a new thought, at least to look at it this way, that sin clumps together, that typically if I'm really engaging in a certain kind of sin in my life, guess what? There are probably other sins that I'm engaging in as well. Because one sin invites another sin. Until it clumps up and, and I get what the Bible says, Hebrews 12, I get entangled in that sin. Well, we think, I'm just dealing with one sin here. It's a sexual sin. Or I'm just dealing with an alcohol sin. Or I'm just dealing with this sin or that sin. It's just one sin. And we miss the fact that they clump. <laughs> and rarely am I involved with one sin when there isn't many others involved as well. And the smaller sins, so-called, attract the larger sins until they overcome us. Which is why Solomon's life was a failure in terms of his wisdom. He thought, I'm going to experiment with things. And one wife, and then another wife, and then another. And then he's involved in idol worship. And then he's involved in idol worship that involves death. And all this stuff is now spinning around this guy who was supposed to be so wise and such a follower. Because sin sticks to itself. The desire for sense of pleasure, attracting a hunger for prosperity and power, luring a person to that place that ultimately ends in, James says, death. And Solomon's pursuit of the gods of his many wives reveals this progression of sin and idolatry leading to corruption and ultimately to death. Verse 9. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who, watch this, had appeared to him twice. The Lord reminds us of that, I think, purposefully here. He had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. A quick note, I believe this is a reminder that dreams and visions and manifestations of Jesus are not the substance and producers of faith. Now the Lord will use dreams and visions and manifestations to His glory. And for evangelical purposes even. And we, we hear more about this in foreign countries than we do here. But dreams and visions even have been given to people here in this fellowship 
And I don't discount those at all. But I'm here to tell you, these are not the things that produce the substance of faith. These are not the things that deepen our faith. Solomon saw the Lord in a dream two times. David never saw him. Who had the greater faith? Who was the man after God's own heart? It was David who heard the word of the Lord, spoken and written. Not Solomon who actually saw God in in dreams twice. Jesus said in Matthew 7.24, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. For all of his wisdom, Solomon looked for gods, but he didn't listen to the word of God. Now again, I know when we compare David and Solomon, some people say, yeah, but David sinned too. Yes, he did. But the difference between David and Solomon is that Solomon was half-hearted in his love for the Lord and David was whole-hearted. For all of David's sexual sin, and there was many, he never gave his heart to anyone before God. He never followed after idols. He never chased after the gods of possibly any of the wives that he was married to. His heart was always, always fully devoted to God. Yes, there was sin in his life. But he was devoted to the Lord. Solomon's sin broke loose in his love for all these women. And then as he pursued idol worship, his heart was a divided heart. It's interesting because a divided heart will lead to a divided kingdom. The punishment fits the crime. So how did the Lord handle Solomon's spiritual adultery? And by the way, do notice that when we talk about polygamy... There's nothing in here that indicates God is pleased or okay with the fact that Solomon was polygamous. He was angry with him. So going on in verse 11, the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you. Remember those two dreams, Solomon? Which I have commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David, for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Verse 14. Then the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal line in Edom. For it came about when David was in Edom and Joab the commander of the army had gone up to bury the slain and had struck down every male in Edom for Joab and all Israel stayed there six months until he cut off every male in Edom that Hadad, verse 17, fled to Egypt. He and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him while Hadad was a young boy. They arose from Midian and they came to Paran. And they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt to Pharaoh king of Egypt who gave him a house and assigned him food and gave him land. Now Hadad found great favor before Pharaoh so that he gave him in marriage to the sister of his own wife, the sister of Tachpanos, the queen. The sister of Tachpanos bore his son Genubat, it's not Genubat, which I thought it was, you know, when you really know you showered well, you had a Genubat, but no, it's Genubat, who Tachpanos weaned in Pharaoh's house and Genubat was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab the commander of the army was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, send me away that I may go to my own country. Well then Pharaoh said to him, but what have you lacked with me? 
that behold you are now seeking to go to your own country and he answered nothing nevertheless you must surely let me go something stirs in the heart of Hadad this Edomite this adversary of Israel he's run for his life he's lived all these years now in Egypt but now suddenly David's dead Joab is dead the threat is gone I gotta go back and fight for my land I gotta go back and take a stand for my people and so he is stirred up what stirs up his heart? Well, we know it was the Spirit of the Lord. Because back in verse 12, it says, The Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon. Adversary number one, Hadad the Edomite. Read on. Verse 23, God also raised up another adversary, Reason, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord Hadadetzer, the king of Zobah. He gathered men to himself and became leader of a marauding band after David slew them of Zobah. And they went to Damascus and they stayed there and they reigned in Damascus, which is Syria. And by the way, Israel and Syria are now having open talks for Israel to give up the Golan Heights in exchange for Syria to stop terrorism. That's worked so well in the past, you know. I direct your attention to the Gaza Strip. Anyway... Damascus in Syria. So, verse 25, he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon, along with the evil that Hadad did, and he abhorred Israel, and he reigned over Aram. So Solomon could have asked the Lord, saying, Hey, Dad, what's the reason behind these adversaries? (laughs) So the second adversary is reason. Hey, Dad, the Edomite, reason the Zobahite, What is the reason behind these adversaries? That's a good question. Hold that thought. Two adversaries, Hadad and Reason. They're attacking from without, but the Lord now raises up a third adversary from within Israel. Adversary number three, Jeroboam the Ephraimite. Verse 26. Then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zereda, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. Now, this was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Solomon built up the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of his father David. Now the man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior. And when Solomon saw that, watch this, the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. He gave Jeroboam a great position. This guy's a hard-working young man. He's gifted. He's talented. He has great ability, but he has no affinity for the Lord. He was gifted, but Jeroboam wasn't godly. And this is the danger of raising up anyone to a position of leadership too soon. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, talking about shepherds, says that they should not be a new convert so that they will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. I like the word new convert. In the Greek, it's neophutos. Neophutos, literally translated, one that's newly planted or a newbie. Or as Corey would say, a noob. He's a noob, Dad. What's a noob? Well, a noob is someone who's never played the game before, Dad. Oh, Like me. Yeah, okay. So, dad the noob. Well, we'll see more of the shallow nature of Jeroboam this Sunday morning. But verse 29 going on says, It came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him on the road. Now Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak and both of them were alone in the field. And Ahijah took hold of the new cloak that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. 
For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me. They have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and Hamash, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and observing my statutes and my ordinances, as his father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand. Now, the prophet's saying all of this to Jeroboam, who will be the adversary. It's interesting. He's giving him a lot of information. I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. But I will tear the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. But wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not fair. So his son gets the punishment for the father's sin? No. No. The son gets exactly what he asked for, as you'll see momentarily. Verse 36. But to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. I will take you, Jeroboam, and you shall reign over whatever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. And then it will be... Even this adversary, God gives an opportunity to. He says, then it will be if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you. And I'll build you an enduring house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. Thus I will afflict the descendants of David for this. I like these last three words, but not always. (laughs) I'm going to afflict them. They're about to go through some hard times over the next several centuries, but not always. So Solomon sought, therefore, to put Jeroboam to death. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Egypt continues to be a thorn in the side of Israel. It's interesting to me how many adversaries of Israel flee to Egypt and have sanctuary there. And the reality is that Egypt is always a picture of the world in Scripture. Whereas Israel is often a picture of the Lord and of the Lord's family, Egypt is that picture of the world. And the enemy loves to run to the world for shelter where he can strike closely at our heel. Now I want you to see something here that's interesting to me. Solomon turned his heart toward how many idols did we have named there? Three. Three idols. How many adversaries did the Lord raise up? Three. So for every idol that Solomon chased after, and there may have been more, but what we're told in the story here, the picture is clear. Three failures, three idols, three adversaries. It was quid pro quo, it was one for the other. We need to remember something here as we consider this, this number three and the fact that the Lord raised up the exact same number of adversaries as there were idols that Solomon was chasing. We need to remember before I say anything else that God loved Solomon. We know this. The Bible tells us, 2 Samuel 12, 24, says that David comforted his wife Bathsheba. This is after the child that they bore in sin had died. David comforts her and went into her and lay with her and she gave birth to a son and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet and he named him Jedidiah Beloved of the Lord is what Jedediah means. 
He named him that for the Lord's sake. It's not a name that Solomon will ever use, but it's the name God gave him. That's amazing. How wonderful. Can you even imagine? The guy shows up to you and says, says you know what? I'm going to change your name. Dan, it's not going to be Dan, Danny, or Dano. It's going to be Jedediah. We're going with Jed. Why are we going with Jed? Because God loves you. I think I would go with Jed. I think I would just let Rick fall off. So anybody could say, Jedediah? What are you like, from the south or something? I'd say, no, I'm from the Lord. The Lord loves me. And that was the name he gave. So we know that God loves Solomon. And because he loves Solomon so much, I believe we see a picture here that he used Hadad, Reason, and Jeroboam, three adversaries, as purposeful punishment for Solomon against the idols of Ashtoreth, Molech, and Chemosh. God wasn't deposing a king. He was disciplining a son. And I believe with each one of these adversaries had it turned Solomon's heart. Because remember, Solomon was raised in a palace of peace. Solomon's whole life had been peace. Easy going. No problems. David, who pursued the Lord and stayed with the Lord and trusted the Lord with his whole heart, had a rough life of battles and wars and constant aggression against him. He had to hang on to Jesus. Solomon comes along and it's easy street. What do I need God for? As so many American teenagers might say today. How tough is it? Yeah, I heard about that earthquake in China, but it's not quaking here. I think teenagers in New Orleans might think differently or New York City after 9-11. I think maybe we're starting to get some wake-up calls here. But had Solomon, after the, the attacks coming from Hadad, had he all of a sudden said, what is going on here? This isn't right, Lord. It might have stopped right there. The discipline may have done its effective work. I like this. One pastor said it was a father's discipline to get his son off his high horse and back onto his knees. That's why he raised up these adversaries. He wasn't trying to drive Solomon out. He even tells one of the adversaries, Jeroboam, I'm not going to strip the kingdom from him. That'll happen to his son. As long as he's alive, he's going to remain king for the sake of his father David. And so these adversaries are not to drive Solomon out. They're to basically to prick at him like a cattle prod saying, Solomon, come on. Wake up. Pay attention. I love you. This is discipline and I know it's hard, but it's because I love you. A father's discipline. We read about this in Hebrews chapter 12. Let me just read this to you. Hebrews 12 and verse 4. It says in one of my favorite verses, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And I haven't. As hard as life gets from time to time, I've never shed blood for it. Now if someone hauled off and slugged me in the nose, then I think I could claim this verse, but it hasn't happened yet. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. That's what we see with Solomon. He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you're without discipline, of which of all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. 
but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Gang, this is not judgment. This is fatherly discipline. That's what God is doing with Solomon. And I, this caught me off guard. Because in all of our bashing of Solomon over the last several weeks, which has been really easy to do, I come to this chapter and began reading and seeing that, that I mean, there, okay, there are three gods here. I mean, it, it hit me when I realized that, and, that Molech and Milcom were the same God. I'm like, oh, okay, it's just three. And three adversaries. God's disciplining here. Why would God be disciplining? Because He loves Solomon. Even in chapter 11, God has not given up. I gave up on Solomon four or five chapters back. I'll just let you know. The Lord didn't. To the very end, God was disciplining His Son to get His attention. Three spankings for three acts of rebellion. And it reminds me of Peter and his three denials of Jesus. Think about this. What did Jesus say would be the sign of Peter's three denials? What did he say would happen? The rooster would crow. Matthew 26.34 Truly I say to you this very night before a rooster crows you will deny me three times which means that for the rest of Peter's life every time the rooster alarm went off every morning he would remember his denials. He wouldn't forget. He'd wake up and there it would be again. I deny Jesus. I think Jesus knew this. I think Jesus when he called this to Peter's attention, he didn't just say, you're going to deny me three times before the night's over. He said, you're going to deny me three times and when the rooster crows, you'll realize it. Why, Jesus? Compassionate Jesus, gentle Jesus, loving Jesus, why would you give him such an earmark, quote unquote, no pun intended, such an earmark for his sin that every time he heard a rooster, then for the rest of his life, he would remember, I denied Jesus on the night he needed me most. I failed miserably. Why would he do that? The Bible says the Lord forgets our sin, but it doesn't say we will. This was just spoken to us this last weekend at Malibu. I don't come up with everything I share. Now think about that. The Lord forgets our sin. As far as the east is from the west, as far as the depths of the sea, he he doesn't... Pay the attention. They're gone. He forgets, but we don't. Why? I kind of like to forget. There's stuff I've done back in my... I would love to forget it all. Right now. Could you just wash it out of my mind? And isn't it amazing how Satan will tap you on the shoulder and go, remember this? And we remember our sin again. Now the Bible says one day we will forget our sin. All the former things will not be remembered. Isaiah 65 verse 17. So why does God leave that in our memory? Because the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. Because with each remembrance of the sin, we also have something else to remember. And by the way, so did Peter. Luke 22.31 says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I pray for you that your faith may not fall, and you, when once again you have turned, strengthen your brothers. So before this ever happened, Jesus said, you're going to do it. You're going to blow it. But... Even though Satan has prayed or asked to, to take you out like this, you're going to turn again. And when you do, stand up, man, and be strong for those around you. And in John's Gospel, chapter 22, we, or 21, we read of that great restoration. 
where Peter or Jesus asked Peter three times. Remember, three denials, three times. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And each time Peter responds, you know I like you. Yes, Lord, I like you. And the third time, in fact, the third time, Jesus doesn't say, do you love me? He says, do you like me? In the Greek. And Peter says, you know I like you. And Jesus does this three times, but I want you to catch this. As much as the rooster crow would remind Peter of his failure, by the time breakfast was popping and frying in the pan every day, the sound and the smell of frying fish would remind him of his restoration. The rooster crows before breakfast, but before breakfast is even over. There's another, call it a mnemonic device, a memory device that the Lord gives to Peter. You're going to hear that rooster crow and you're going to be reminded of your sin. Then you're going to have breakfast and you're going to remember that time on the beach when I forgave you and restored you and called you out to shepherd the sheep. And that's what Jesus does. See, this is the love of the Father. The gentleness of Jesus, the Father heart of God, that is not punishment for punishment's sake, not discipline to prove a point, it's correction to write a course, and it's restoration to write a relationship, and that I believe is God's heart for Solomon in chapter 11. So what happened to Solomon? Well, his story ends quietly with these words. Verse 41, Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and whatever he did, and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? Thus the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David and his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. What about Solomon? Was he saved? Will we see him in heaven? I've raised that question. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 13 Solomon wrote at the very end of his writing the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act to judgment everything which is hidden whether it is good or evil so the question we have to ask when we finish Ecclesiastes which someday I hope to do the question is was this a statement that came out of hopeful faith Or was it a statement of resigned fate? And the answer is, I don't know. (laughs) And we're going to have to wait, not until Sunday to find out, but until Jesus comes back. So you're going to really have to wait for that one unless he comes back tonight, in which case we'll know right away. And that's what I'm hoping for. But we do know this. We know that at the end of Solomon's life, his legacy is a legacy of division. But because Solomon had a divided heart, so his legacy was a kingdom divided. Chapter 12, verse 1, Then Rehoboam went to Shechem. Rehoboam, Solomon's son. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And now when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was living in Egypt, for he was yet in Egypt, where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. And then they sent, and they called him. This Jeroboam was a popular guy. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and they spoke to Rehoboam. And they said, Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us and we will serve you. And then he said to them, Depart for three days and then return to me. So the people departed. Well, King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? 
Verse 7, Then they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today, and will serve them, and grant their petition, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. These wise counselors handed Rehoboam the key to keeping the kingdom together. He had it right there before him. The key to true authority is humility. The key to an authority that people will follow and listen to is humility. And Jesus epitomizes this very type of authority. A humble lordship. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, riding a mighty steed, charging into Jerusalem. Well, sorry, that's not what it says. It says, He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It wasn't even a full-grown donkey. He just came riding in on a little donkey. The king of the universe is a man of great humility. And just before Jesus did this very thing, riding into Jerusalem, Matthew eleven twenty eight says that he said, Come to me, all who are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. It's the only time, by the way, Jesus describes himself. I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Did Rehoboam then continue with the yoke of Solomon, which was heavy on the people, or did he go forward with the yoke of Jesus, which is light? Well, verse 8 tells us, He forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. And he said to them, What counsel do you give me that we may answer these people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us. And the young men who grew up with him spoke, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, now make it lighter for us. You shall speak to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. (laughs) You think dad was tough? Check me out. Whereas my father, verse 11, loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, I will discipline you with scorpions. Then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Return to me on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy. But I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Like father, like son. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events, watch this, from the Lord, that he might establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah the Shelanite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. I think that's interesting because many times we see prophecy in Scripture happen in one book, and then we see it fulfilled three, four, five, seven hundred years later in another book. Here, and we're going to see this again on Sunday, we see prophecy given and instantaneously fulfilled. Almost, you know, within a matter of days. We'll see that in the story that follows on Sunday morning. The year was 920 B.C. When all this happened, verse 15, the king did not listen to the people. It was a turn of events from the Lord that he might establish his word. 920 B.C., Israel divided into two kingdoms. The kingdom in the, in the north, which was Israel, or sometimes called, um, called by Ephraim, and then the kingdom in the south, Judah, which contained Judah and it also contained little Benjamin. 
The ten northern tribes followed after that bright, industrious young man, Jeroboam, who would lead them down a golden calf path. I want to just read a few more verses and we'll stop tonight. Verse 16, When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel! Now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. But as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. And then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death. In other words, he sent Adoram up to northern Israel to say, hey, come on back. I mean, we're, we're king. Will they kill him? And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day, which, by the way, that kind of earmarks when this was written that this had to be written before 722 B.C., which is where Israel fell. Verse 20, It came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, that they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David. Now, when Rehoboam had come to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors, to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of the Lord came to Shimeiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to, to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You must not go up and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing has come from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord, and they returned and went their way according to the word of the Lord. And we're going to stop there for tonight, but listen. That was in 920. 200 years later in 722, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to Assyria. A few hundred years later in 586, southern Judah fell to Babylon. If you know the history, you know a small remnant returned from Babylon 70 years later to reestablish at least a presence in Judah or in that southern kingdom. But Judah would be a vassal state, a vassal nation to every nation around them. They would be conquered and stomped on year after year after year until finally in 70 AD when Rome has come along and Rome completely destroys them. 135 AD driving them out completely. But you know... You know the rest of the story. And that's why I love studying this stuff on this side, on this part of the fence of history. We're over here, we're able to look back at all these things happening. And we know something happened. 60 years ago this year, in fact, 60 years ago last Wednesday, May 14th, marked the anniversary of Israel becoming a bona fide nation in the world again. All Israel, Judah and Israel, north and south, all of the people of Israel, the Jews scattered throughout the world, have been coming back. Now what's amazing is Ezekiel 37 has a prophecy in it. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you right now. But it's the prophecy of the two sticks. Where God says to Ezekiel, He says, I want you to take a stick and, and I want you to carve or write Judah on one stick. And I want you to take another stick and write Ephraim on it. Well, Ephraim was the designation of the northern kingdom. As I just spoke a moment ago. He says, I want you to take those two sticks and bind them together as though they're one stick. This is what I'm going to do. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to bring them back together again. And Ezekiel 
Say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah. And I will make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. God was great with this. In fact, we see over and over with the prophets how he used word pictures to explain things to the people. How the prophet tore the coat for Jeroboam and gave him ten pieces of the fabric. Well, this is what's going to happen. Now, I don't know if it was because they were especially slow or just because word pictures are a great way to do things. I think we need them just as much today. But he says, take these sticks, hold them up before them and say, look at this, check this out. Ephraim's written on one stick. Judah's written on the other stick. They're one stick. This is what God promises is going to happen again. Say to them, Ezekiel 37, 21, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king, one king, not not me, but one king, will be king of all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. Solomon had a divided heart. What followed was the divided kingdom, which never was unified again until 1948. We in this generation have seen the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy of the two sticks. You you want to see prophecy fulfilled? Look at Israel. Because we have been privileged to watch it happen in this generation today. Our faithful father gang is most certainly a disciplinarian, but he is also incredibly patient. And he didn't work out these things in a moment or in a handful of years. He worked it across the centuries. And it's a reminder to us that we might not feel like we're in the right place now. We might feel like the discipline is heavy from the hand of the Lord right now, but he's doing it, the Hebrew writer says, for our own good so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Amen? Let's bow and pray together. Father, Lord, rather than um, hammer on the life of Solomon, which, Father, I apologize, maybe we've done a little more than we should have, We want to thank you for his life and thank you for the example and thank you for making so clear to us that you love Solomon with a great love, even calling him your beloved. Father, I pray that you will give us the same attitude toward those who right now we think couldn't possibly be in your good graces. Will you help us remember that you love people who we might think are unlovable. Father, you love people who we despair of thinking that they have no opportunity to be saved. They just, they're too rebellious. They're too dark. They've, they've gone too far away. Remind us how much you love them. And teach us to love the same way. And more personally, Father, tonight... Would you, even in our times of discipline, just speak that word of love into our hearts? Help us, Lord, to recognize when there are adversaries raised up against us, though Satan has his bad and evil purposes, you always have a good purpose. You always have a reason for allowing or even, Father, ordaining what happens to us. Because you love us. Lord Jesus, thank you for this love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen.